1: Welcome to Episode 8 of I Am Steve R. And I am Steve R. And uh, we're going to spend some time today talking about Step 1. It is uh, it is the most important step in the recovery process. And uh, I want to share with you, if I can, a brief story about an exchange I had with someone. It's uh, an acquaintance of mine that uh, reached out about uh, a loved one of theirs that reached out and said, you know, he simply can't stay clean and sober. And so there is a reality that we have to kind of come to grips with here is that there are some people that are really beyond help. But they are very few and far between. There was a time when I tried to convince myself that I was one of those unfortunates. And the big book tells us is that there are those people that are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. And there are times early in recovery that I struggled with that, with the ability to be honest with myself about my own demise, about my own behavior, and about my own consequences. And so the first step in really establishing that, that aspect of it, was being honest with myself about step one. And so we're going to get into that, but I want to share a little bit more about the story because I am sure many of you probably can see some similarities and it's one of the things that I encourage people that in recovery to do is to seek the similarities in our stories rather than the differences because there are many of us that say well I haven't experienced this I haven't gone through that so I must not be an alcoholic well the word yet is very powerful I haven't done those things yet because the thing that I have learned in your 30 years of recovery is that there really is not much beneath me. When I let my character defects run wild, when I kind of get out of my program and I lose that spiritual connection with a higher power, there is not much that I am not capable of. And I also know that if I go out and then, uh, you know, drink or use again, that I am increasing the odds of experiencing those consequences. So this gentleman... This loved one of a of a friend of mine. This this young man, I say young. He's much younger than me, but he is not a kid by any stretch of imagination. He's not he's not a young person that that um, <clears throat> is not capable of reasoning with themselves. You know, a lot of things that happen. You know, when you're a teenager, before you develop the ability to reason and establish good judgment. There are things you look at and say, well, I'm, I'm old enough to know better, but young enough to get away with it. And so that becomes kind of a mantra for riotous living. And so he is kind of caught up in some of that. And as I kind of broke it all down to her, is that this is a young man in his early 30s. He is certainly capable of living and working independently. He is a young person that is capable of achieving employment and maintaining a job if he chooses to, because it is a choice. There was a time in my life I did not have the ability to choose. This program gave me the ability to have that back. It gave me the ability to make the decisions for my life rather than just riding the wave of consequence and of the shining new memory of the next good time, I learned that I could see things for what they really are and allow them to kind of play out in my mind with forethought. Okay, this is what's probably going to happen to me. Not that I always project negative things, but it's one of those things I look at and say, okay, if I go out and do these things, if I get involved with this relationship, chances are it is not going to be beneficial to me. It could hurt me. It could hurt them. It could hurt someone else. If I get involved with this particular behavior, there are consequences for that behavior, and so that's what you—that's what the disease kind of robs you of. It robs you of the ability to kind of see down the road, to understand that there is an end game to all of this, and that at some point, the chickens all come home to roost. And so this this young man has uh, just recently been put on probation. His family hoped. This is how desperate it has become. His family, his dear mother, had hoped that they would lock him up so she didn't have to worry about the possibility of getting that phone call and planning a funeral. That's how desperate it has become, and it is an agonizing life for her because she has already lost one child to a tragic accident. And now she has a second child that is uh, you know, sliding down the razor's edge of addiction. And she feels completely hopeless and powerless. That is a a difficult word for many of us to accept, to feel hopeless and powerless. But if you use long enough or you drink long enough, at some point, the consequences get so much to bear that you are faced with a decision. And for many of us, it takes professional intervention. It takes something drastic, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be a divorce, whether it be, you know, the death of someone close to us. There are things that happen. Uh, it's kind of like rubbing up against a barbed wire fence. You can only do it for so long. And eventually those barbs get to you and they put you back out to pasture. You get away from that deterrent. And so everything that I went through, I say, well, you know, it, you know, AA just didn't work for him. And you've heard me talk about this on the show before. You know, for many people that say that the 12 steps didn't work for them or people that didn't work the 12 steps, you know, you're not going to get it through osmosis. I mean, you can't just go into the meetings and all of a sudden, well, you just go to meetings and you see the stuff and you hear the stuff and you just absorb it and then you just get better just by association. That's just not how it works. You have to actually do the work. The 12 steps can be a very daunting process. Now, I'm going I'm to speak real frank with you here. Most people that don't make it are people who are too scared of the person that they may become on the other side of this. Either they are too weak, they are unwilling, or they're just simply not ready. And so I'm going to break down step one for you today. Because of all the steps that I have taken, it was the most difficult one for me. A lot of people say, "Well, man, if step one is so hard, you know, why is why why isn't the rest of it more difficult?" Well, I think because number one is the foundation for the rest of the program. And let's go ahead and read this and make sure that we kind of understand. And we're going to kind of break down the phrase here because I think it's important. You know, sometimes there are a lot of people out there that they uh, they write books about the Big Book, or they talk about, you know, commentary on the big book, but they don't read the big book. And I think it's important that let's look at it for how it's written. Let's look at it, how Bill W. and Dr. Bob put it all together. Let's start with step one here. I think, again, there are sometimes we want to kind of homogenize all of this, right? You know what I'm saying? It's like we we want the, uh, you know, the cafeteria aspect of it. We just kind of want to pick and choose the things that apply to us. And it takes a real reckless abandon to get sober and stay sober. You know, I had no qualms about doing anything to find the next good time. I mean, there was nothing that I wouldn't do. There was nobody I wouldn't hang out with. There was no links that I wouldn't go. Because I was always looking for the next wave. I always wanted the next big thing. I always wanted the next amazing adventure. And so... That will lead you into some relationships and uh, some acquaintanceships that are very, very negative. But you kind of rationalize that in your mind saying, well, this is what I have to do to get what I want. So here is step one right out of the big book. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. So let's take the first part of step one here. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and it could be drugs, it could be cocaine, it could be marijuana, it could be sex, it could be any number of things, food, shopping, anything, any form of addiction that makes you feel better about you. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You wouldn't be listening to the show if you didn't. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Now, the whole word about being powerless was a real stumbling block for me because i've always considered myself a very intelligent person, a very capable person, a very powerful person, and so to admit that something is greater than me or powerless or powerful over me, to me, you know, there was a connotation there that i saw as weakness, that it was it was basically me ad- admitting weakness. If i am honest with myself, i was powerless over alcohol. I was powerless over its effects on my life. I was powerless over my quest to seek narcotics. And then once I ingested my you know, selected drug of choice of the evening, at that point I was kind of off to the races. I had kind of given my power to those items. I had given them permission to take me places I had never been before. And so I freely gave my power away to alcohol and drugs, freely. It didn't take it, but once it had it, it abused it in ways that I never thought imaginable. And so it's not a matter of being weak. There is a real strength in saying, you know what, I have been whipped here. I have been thoroughly beaten here. It's kids say today, you just gotta learn to take the L. Well, you know, back in nineteen ninety one, I had to kind of say, you know what? Maybe there's something to this. You know, just maybe if I just you know, if I just say the words and just having the way to articulate that, say that you know what, I am powerless over alcohol. Now I had plenty of evidence to support that contention that I was powerless over alcohol. Now, a normal person, a person that's not an alcoholic, there are times that they experience powerlessness when it comes to alcohol. When perhaps they, uh, you know, they binge drink or something. There are some people that go out there, you know, they'll go to Vegas or whatever, go to New Orleans and just have a big time, and they get a little too deep in the jug, and it is a problem for them. But they recognize that it is a problem, and then they don't do it again, at least for you know, foreseeable future. But for people like us. You know, we did it, and we continued to do it, and it became such a focal point of our life that it took some measure of control in our lives. At least it did for me. You know, I was the kind of person, like if I went to somebody's house and they only had a six-pack of beer, I wouldn't drink. And you would say, Steve, that's silly. Well, if we, if we couldn't get drunk, to me, there was no point in drinking. I didn't just want to have a beer to kind of kick back and relax and, and feel okay with life. I wanted to get drunk. And I used to always joke with people and say, oh, I got a couple beers in here. I'd say, well, all that's going to do is piss me off. You know, I wanted to be able to forget. I wanted to be able to get drunk. I wanted to be able to have a good time. I wanted to laugh and joke. And I wanted to kind of escape from the reality that was my life. And, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that there was a lot of pain in my life. And so I found some sense of remedy in alcohol and drugs and many of you did as well. But in time, the remedy became the poison because the problems that I had never went away. I just was able to escape from them for a long time. And so when you get drunk or you get high, it gives you a chance to kind of pause some of that in your mind anyway. You think, okay, well, I don't have to deal with this for now. And so I'll drink or I'll do drugs. And then what happens is when you sober up again, your problem is still there. It didn't resolve itself of its own volition. It's still there. I still had to deal with it. And so it was just easier to get drunk and high again rather than deal with the problem. And that's what grown people do. Grown people address the issues as they emerge. And so rather than do that, I would rather stay higher drunk now that was not a conscious decision it was something that kind of happened over time because in the beginning it was just you know i drank into drugs for extra fun and then in time what happened is it became such a normal part of my life that in many ways it took over my life you know i used to smoke marijuana every single day i'll I, I laugh with you guys sometimes too when, I, when these people put wake and bake out there i invented that i was the first waking baker i'd get up every morning (laughs) first thing i did every morning some people made a pot of coffee i would go roll up a joint smoke a joint just to get the day started and i smoked so much that i actually damaged my esophagus i had to go to doctors and i got sober and all that kind of stuff and thankfully i didn't require surgery or anything it's just you know you quit smoking and quit drinking and and uh, a lot of those little, you know, physical elements you have kind of, you know, they kind of heal themselves when you don't continue to add the negative stimuli, right? But it, when I was honest with myself, and I had a, <clears throat> a counselor at Pine Grove that uh, loved me enough to be honest with me, and and um, you know, they, they began to kind of tell me, listen, here's where you are. Here's the reality of what you're facing. And I was not ready to accept that because, like, again, I, I had this real problem admitting that I could no longer control it because that's really what it's about, right? That's really what admitting powerlessness is and admitting that I am powerless over something is to say that I have reached a point in my drinking and drugging career that I can no longer control this. Now, we tell ourselves that we can when we're in that haze, when we're in that self-medicated haze of life, we say, you know, I got it all figured out. Nobody really knows what's going on. I'm able to do this. I'm able to keep a job. I'm able to maintain a relationship. But when you get sober and you kind of get cleaned up a little bit and you look back at that, you realize, man, I was awful. I was a terrible employee, right? I wasn't worth dating. I wasn't a good friend to anybody. I wasn't good in any of my familiar relationships because I didn't prioritize them. Now, in my mind, you know, it's like we have this whole, you know, main character energy, as my daughter describes it to me. Well, we think that our life is like a movie and everybody around us is a supporting actor. It's a very narcissistic and very narrow-minded way to live, but that's who I was. And in many respects, I still kind of struggle with that. But what happens is you begin to take these things and these people for granted, you begin to think, well, they're going to stay with me because I am the main character here. This is the movie of my life. And so you know, I kind of pick and choose who gets to be in scene two, three, four, and 5 and who's around for the grand finale. But the reality of life is, is that's simply not true. It's simply not true. And so when we begin to kind of wrap our mind around being powerless and kind of admitting powerless, I had to kind of sit there and say, okay, well, this is what you guys are telling me to say, so I'll just say it. But I never really embraced the belief or the behavior. I just kind of said it because they told me to do it. But in time, it really began to take hold and make sense to me. When I began to look back and say, you know, look at what a mess I have made of all of this. And a lot of it has to do with my drinking and drug, you know, career. You know, it's not as simple as well, I just had a few consequences here and there. Everything in my life was affected negatively by drugs and alcohol. Everything. And I'm sure that's true for you as well, even if you're not ready to admit that. You know, I had people that I loved that kind of kept me at arm's length for a while. And it was probably the best decision they could make because I was a very self-destructive person, and I had no qualms about hurting other people. I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, you go through that whole thing, and I don't use profanity on this show, but it's like, you know, my, my, my give-a-crap meter was broken. I didn't care. And you know what? If you wanted to pack up and go, that was cool too because I didn't care about you. There was some sense of obligation. You know, I thought, well, this person, you as know, is in my family. They're a sibling or whatever, or, you know, and I've, I've got to find a way to make this relationship work. So you fake it for a while. But my true feelings were, is I didn't care who stayed, and I didn't care who, who who came, who left, whatever. It just didn't matter to me. Again, it's back to that whole main character energy. It simply didn't matter, because I felt like, you know what, whoever leaves will be replaced by somebody else anyway. And it was just like you know, romantic relationships. I mean, my friends used to call me Baskin and Robbins because it was the flavor of the month club. You know, I'd start dating somebody, I'd be all fired up about them, and then I'd get bored with them because it was really it was never really about them they were never healthy relationships it was just someone to hang out with it was just somebody to have sex with it was just somebody to go to go places with it was somebody that I didn't have to be alone with you know what i'm saying it's like you know what happens is you have this joint isolation thing where you know people are with you for all the wrong reasons in the first place in my respect a lot of times people were with me because i could dance in a club and i could look cool and you know i was one of the cool kids or whatever and i always had drugs and so so I attracted people that were always needful of drugs. I was attracted to people that, uh, that wanted to go out and live a party lifestyle. You know, we, didn't, we never had a normal relationship where we sat around the house and, you know, you know, made ramen noodles and watched, you know, TV. We didn't do that. We didn't go get Blockbuster and just sit around. I mean, it's like the only time I would see these people is when something big was going on. You know, there would be some people that would just kind of pass by every now and again and come smoke a joint and, and spend some time shall we say, in a PG-13 way, and then they would move on. It was all very single-serving. There was no enrichment in the relationship. There was no spiritual, romantic, or emotional connection. It was all a means to an end. And so when I began to, when I got sober, and I began to look back at that, I was like, you know, every relationship that I had had was unhealthy because I was unhealthy and so as a result I attracted unhealthy people because you know and I've heard you've heard me say it on the show before they become co-conspirators in our own demise you know you cling to each other like a life raft out of necessity rather than love and so when I look back at that and took a real inventory of all that I said you know I've never had a relationship that was ever really fulfilling I've never had one where somebody really loved me for me. I never had anybody pick me. And let me explain that a little bit, too. You know, sometimes we end up in relationships by default, right? And so when, the, when your significant other has options, right, and they pick you, it's a little more rewarding. Now, if somebody is just with you out of convenience... If somebody is with you out of obligation, if somebody is with you because they can't find anybody else, then uh, that's not a real relationship. That's not a fulfilling or a loving relationship. And so many of the people that I attracted were people that had burned every other bridge they had. So I was just, you know, a, a safe harbor in the storm for a while, until somebody else came along that was a little bit cuter or had better drugs or a nicer car, more money to go spend on them. And you, and you begin to tell yourself that this is all that I deserve. And so that, for me, was a way for me to kind of admit that, you know, when I was power, powerless over all of this because I had made these decisions to give the will and the care of my life over to my drug of choice. Is like, here's my life, here's my heart, here's my soul, here's my mind, here's my life, here's all my money, here's everything that i hold true, and you can have it. And just take me where you want. Drop me where you want. Make me stay as long as you want. And so when I began to see this whole powerlessness thing in those terms, I was already very well equipped to what it meant to have no power in my life because it's not about admitting weakness and let's look at how Webster defines that I think it's important again let's look at it for what it is rather than what we think it is because there's so much out there that um, you know we kind of convince ourselves of what we think it should be rather than what it really is so here's how Webster defines powerlessness it is the lack of ability influence or power lack of ability influence or power and so when we freely give our power to a substance we are basically signing up for the roller coaster ride right and so that's the part of it that was so difficult for me but once i reached a point that i had somebody explain it to me and you have these spiritual awakenings You know, as you go, like you have these eureka moments, and it's like all of a sudden things make sense. like, oh, well, that's why that didn't work out. Oh, well, that's why that happened. You know, if you put garbage in your life, you're going to get garbage out. You know, when you bring in negativity in your life, if that's the fuel for your life, then, you know, the engine of your soul will continue to burn on that negative fuel just to kind of keep the thing going. But you're just kind of polluting everybody around you. That's the reality of that. And so for me, being able to kind of wrap my mind around the fact that I had not had power over my life in a long time made it easier for me to say, you know what? I really have been powerless over all of this. I can't control it. That's one of the things that I think is important, and I've had that discussion with a friend of mine recently too, just kind of preparing for the show is, you know, it's like we we convince ourselves that everything that happens to our main character, energy guy, right? That if we somehow would have done something a little bit different, would it be, let's say for an example, you have a relationship that ends or that you have a job that ends or something chaotic happens in your life that causes a negative change, for us that have that main character energy and for those of us that are you know wrapped in the throes of addiction we think well if we had done something different that would not have happened and that is really a control issue is it not i mean it's like we think if if i if i had done something different then i could have changed the outcome what powerlessness teaches us is that there are some things that simply happen to us whether we choose them or not We're just kind of along for the ride at times, and that's where the serenity prayer comes in, right? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and there are more of them than there are things you can change. And so when you begin to break that down and begin to think about that, how many things in life have happened to me that I had no control over? Right? There are people on the Mississippi Gulf Coast and in New Orleans and places like that, that that lost everything in Hurricane Katrina. I don't believe that's karma. I believe it's just life. It's life on life's terms. And so if those things happen to them, because there are bad things that happen to good people all the time, it doesn't mean they deserve it. It doesn't mean they did anything. It doesn't mean that they can control it. Let's say you go on vacation and you come home and find out your, your house is burned down. And you could think of a million things. Well, maybe we shouldn't have gone on vacation. Or maybe we should have done this. Or maybe I should have had an electrician come and check this. Or maybe this, maybe that. At some point, you just have to accept the fact that in life, some things happen. And so that, again, gets us a little bit closer to kind of admitting our powerlessness. We are not in charge of everything in our lives. No matter what we tell ourselves, no matter what these self help books tell us, no matter what Facebook tells us, no matter what all these gurus on social media tell us, the bottom line is there are going to be things that happen in our lives that are out of control. When you give the will and care of your life over to alcohol and drugs, there's going to be. to be a lot more of them. Let's get into the second part of that phrase. My life had become unmanageable. That was a lot easier for me to admit because there was a lot more evidence, right? You know, for me, the first time that I set foot in an AA meeting, I was a patient at Pine Grove Recovery in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I was facing four felony charges. I had several others that were dropped. There were several other things that I had done that I had not been charged with. So I guess you could say that I got away with it. And the statute of limitations has run out on that. So I've spoken with you guys about that on the show before. That was easy for me to admit that my life was unmanageable. You now, for other people, you know, there are some people that are kind of functioning drug addicts and alcoholics. You know, I still had a job, you know, I was still able to get up every day and go to work. I went to work high most of the time, but uh, I still went to work. I was still able to pay my bills. And so in many ways, that leads to a bit of denial, right? Because what we do is we begin to compare ourselves to other people. We have this whole what about-ism theology. Well, in my mind, a drug addict is a person that is living on the streets and has to prostitute themselves or whatever. And and listen, I know a lot of well-to-do people that... uh, you know the women that slept with people for drugs that were still paying uh you know their bills and everything else and kind of keeping a marriage together it's the way they did it to kind of hide that they, they couldn't hide it in the finances is because of the fact they had to explain the beg statement at the end of the months so they did what they felt they had to do i would say their life is unmanageable if you have to go sleep with some stranger to uh to get drugs and alcohol because you're uh you know, your, your habit has grown to that point, I would submit to you that your life is unmanageable. If you have to go do things that are beneath your moral code to feed your habit, your life is unmanageable. You know, for me at some point, you know, there were things that I wanted because I was barely getting by. You know, the life that I wanted to lead required more finances than I had. And so I got involved with crime and things like that and, you know, tried to do what I could to supplement my income. And so life was very unmanageable for me. And there are other people out there that are living and hearing the show today and say, you know, my life is an absolute mess. And the fact that you can say that for yourself maybe gets you to a point that maybe you're ready to take certain steps. And that's step one being a big part of that. And so there are other people out there, as I mentioned before, that, you know, they appear to have it all together. And they convince themselves, well, I'm not that bad yet. Because, hey, we're still able to pay the mortgage. Hey, the kids are still in private school. You know, the bills are all paid. I'm still able to do all of this. And so as as much as I'm hurting inside and as unhappy as I am, as alone as I feel, I'm still able to get those things done. And so we put up this wall of denial and we tell ourselves, hey, you know what? My life's really not that bad. I just need to quit doing this. I think it's easy. Actually, I think it's easier. For those that are on Skid Row and for those of them that have been maybe kicked out of a home or lost a marriage and that sort of stuff, I think it's almost easier for them to get clean and sober. And the reason that I say that is because, you know, when I first got clean and sober, as I've shared with you guys many times, I was so far from where I needed to be that any step I took was in the right direction. And there are other people out there that, you know, they're able to to kind of cloud some of that up and say, you know, well, listen, I don't, have to, I don't have all that. I haven't been arrested. I haven't been kicked out of my home. I haven't lost all these relationships. And we get back to one of the things I said earlier in the show. Yet. Yet. It's a progressive illness. Nobody stays in the same place for long. It's just like so for those of you that know rock and roll, right? If you know the song Mr. Brownstone by Guns N' Roses, I used to do a little and then the little wouldn't do it so the little got more and more it's a truism in life life you know for us that live with addiction that is the reality of it you build up a tolerance to it and at some point your ability to manage your life is exceeded by your desire to get high and so you start cutting corners you start doing things that are beneath your moral code But it's more difficult, I think, for people that can hold it together a little bit better to admit their life is unmanageable because they can say, Hey, look at all I have, look at this big house, look at what all we get to do. And then meanwhile, they're spiritually and morally bankrupt. You know, they're a shell of themselves as a person. It's just like they're they're just it's it's like a scarecrow. You know, if you go up there and push them, there's just nothing there. There's nothing underneath there. There's nothing behind the breastplate it's just a shell of a person and so as you begin to kind of work through this step you have to kind of understand okay well how has my addiction how has my decision to drink and use alcohol and drugs how has that impacted my life i have had a uh, a young lady reach out to me that is a listener of the show and uh she's got you know a little sobriety under her belt this time and this is her third or fourth attempt at this and that was, that was one of the stumbling blocks for her is that she just simply, she knew that she had a problem with drugs and alcohol, but she didn't think it was that bad because she was still, you know, still maintaining a job and a career and was still very successful. And, you, and I began to ask her, I said, you know, you have this big house and you have this wonderful husband and you have these children and you're, everybody's in private school and you're driving the SUV and you get a new car every year and, and how much that's making you happy? And she burst into tears. She goes, I just feel so guilty and ungrateful because I don't find joy in those things. And those are the things that I've shared many times before. You know, the the difference between, you know, the street prostitute and the soccer mom is where they get their drugs and how they get them. At the end of the day, there's more commonality between the two of them than there are differences. Because in our hearts and in our souls, we're absolutely riddled with guilt. We're absolutely just shredded by our own self loathing. Because we begin to tell ourselves, you know, we're not a good person. And I think it's important to kind of understand the distinction between a good person, and a bad person, a sick person, and a well person. You know, there's a lot of quote, doctor evil quotes, good people that do a lot of bad things. There are some bad people out there to do some good things. I'm not here to make judgments on who you are or what kind of person you are. But if you're a person that's sick, and only you can answer that. And every addict that I've ever met, even those that never sought recovery, all knew they were addicts. They may have had a tough time admitting it to themselves, but they knew they exhibited the behaviors. And in their hearts and in their soul, they knew that they were empty. They were trying to fill the voids in their life with drug and alcohol. And it is a void that is almost like the Grand Canyon. If it rained every day from now on, you just simply could not fill that void. And so I encourage you today to be honest with yourself, even if you're not ready to admit it to anybody else, but be honest with yourself about your life and about the consequences that you're facing in your life. We'll circle back to the young man at the beginning of the show, the story that I shared with you. He's uh, now on probation, has another court date coming up here in a couple of weeks because he got into a, uh, into a fight where somebody got seriously injured. He cannot keep a job, and at 31 or 32 years of age, he's back home living with his mother. He uh, took some hallucinogenic drugs over the weekend, In her home after he had promised her that he was clean Uh, he got kicked out of a treatment center a while back and of course that you know that that becomes you know that's a justification now it's like well you know I tried I tried I I mean I, I did it I was there for two months and then they kicked me out well here's what happened after they kicked him out it's like and even if you get kicked out right you can still take charge of your own recovery you can still take charge of your own life But it becomes an excuse for many people. So they kick him out. And so my question was, is when they kicked him out, uh, did he go to meetings? No. Did he get a sponsor? No. Did he work the steps? No. Did he get a counselor? No. Did he seek any type of professional help? No. Because in his mind, he was now justified to drink and use the rest of his life. Because he had gone to treatment for a few weeks, and then he broke the rules and then he was dismissed from the program. But it was not his fault, it was their fault. Well, I tried, they kicked me out. And so now he is off to the races and feels that he is now justified for life. And so here's the thing that I'll break down about that. It is not normal for 30-year-old men to live at home with their mothers, unless their mothers are ill, or if they're in some type of life transition. You, know, you get a divorce, sometimes you gotta move back home to get your feet off from under you, whatever, you lose a job. I get it. These are wild times in which we live. But it is not normal for a man to go back home and live with his mom. It's not normal. It's not normal for a guy in their thirties not to be able to keep a job. That's not manage, that's not managing your life. It is not normal to have your parent paying your bills. It is not normal to be a thirty-some odd young man, a year-old young man, to trip and drop hallucinogenic drugs in your mom's house on a weekend. That is not normal behavior. Normal people don't act this way, and that's one of the things too that, that kind of irritates me about life today. Is you know, there are so many people that that are that are so afraid. To call negative behavior what it is, so we justify it. Well, what, Steve, what's really normal? Stop. Stop it right now. Stop it. There is no rationalizing that behavior. That is addictive behavior. It is negative behavior. And some would say, well, Steve, you know, you can't really tell people how to, how to, how to live their lives. You know what? It's absolutely true. It's 100% true. I can't tell anybody else how to live, but I can tell you how I live, and I can tell you that I exhibited those same behaviors I embraced those same behaviors, and then I allowed those people to enable me. I didn't realize how sick I was making them. And so if you're you're a loved one of an addict here today, let me encourage you to do a couple things. There is a book that you can get online at any number of online outlets called Codependent No More. I'm going to encourage you to buy that book and read the book don't just buy it and put it up on a shelf get it go read it because if you are a person that is living with addiction if someone that you love is an addict or an alcoholic or is exhibiting addictive behaviors then you too are sick you too are impacted by their illness and so somebody in this relationship has got to be healthy and you might just take some steps not only to improve your life but to begin to hold them to some level of accountability the second thing that I'm going to do is after you read that book, let me encourage you go attend an Al-Anon meeting. So, see what's an Al-Anon meeting. I mean, why am I going to meetings? I'm not in recovery. Well, you know what? You know, families get sick together and families recover together. And even if your loved one doesn't want to get sober, you need to develop some coping skills and learn how to handle them. Go to an Al-Anon meeting. And you'll find that there are people there that are experiencing many of the same things that you're experiencing. There will be a support group that can tell you, you know what, I dealt with that, and here's how I handled it. Because here's what happens. Addiction makes us all feel that we are totally alone and that our problems are so incredibly unique that no one has ever felt that way, no one has ever recovered from that, and that we feel completely hopeless. There is strength in numbers. And so I encourage you to go do that. And if you, listen, I I have shared that with many other people. Say, listen, go get the book. It is a great book, and you may not agree with everything in there. But when you read it, you're going to say, you know what, this is my life. This is what I'm dealing with. You'll find some things in there that will be very relatable to what you're dealing with. And if you're the person, if you're you're the person that is pushing your loved one's way, let's be honest with ourselves today. And let's say, how has my relationship with this person been negatively impacted by my decisions to drink and use is that the problem with the relationship and listen that's not to say there aren't some bad relationships out there that have really had nothing to do with addiction there's some you know some people that are you know kind of uh you know kind of joined at the uh you know with another person you know they're unevenly yoked in many respects and uh that relationship's not going to survive whether you're sober or whether you're drunk it's not gonna make any difference but let's be honest with ourselves today and say listen these are let's say these are the three most negative relationships in my life and then sit down today and take a, a moral inventory I don't maybe even write it down even if you throw it away or burn it up and maybe look at how many times that your use of chemical substances has negatively impacted that relationship. And I'm not saying you got to sit here and stay with everybody. You know, there, there some relationships that aren't going to survive. You're getting sober. And that's okay, too. I say all the time, if your friends don't want to see you winning, they're not your friends. And I mean that. I've learned that the hard way. Even now, I mean, that's one of the things my dad told me years ago, probably one of the the biggest truisms in life that I've learned is that success will make you more enemies than anything else and you've heard the old adage right you know living well is the best revenge you know there are a lot of people I'm I'm sure that were unhappy to see me get sober you know there were a lot of people that thought I should have served a life sentence for the things that I did and there are a lot of people that continue to have this whole uh you know even now 30 years later it's well you know Oh yeah, well one day he was a drunk and he was a drug addict and he was a criminal and he did all this stuff and you know what, I don't even feel that. That says more about them than it does me. I got over 29 years sober under my belt and nobody's going to hold me accountable for something that happened when I was 19. I've already paid my debt to society. I've already been forgiven for that and so I I I don't allow that to define me any longer. But I know who I am And I began to find myself once I fully appreciated step one. Once I was fully able to appreciate the fact that I am not a weak person. I am a strong person. And part of that strength was admitting that I could no longer control drugs and alcohol. That they controlled me. And so it's easy for me to reclaim that power. I just don't give it to them. I have taken that power back. I know that if I give it to them... I am off on the rails and headed to destination unknown, and there's no telling what's going to happen to me along the way. And so you can take your power back. But by admitting that I was powerless over those things, it gave me more power than I ever had. It's like, well, Steve, you know, sometimes you know, we have to do this, we have to do that. You know, that's a decision you've got to make for yourself. But this is the program of complete abstinence. And if you, if you want our way of life, there, there are certain steps you've got to take to get there. You're not going to reinvent the mousetrap. I tried to. I tried to find the easier, softer way. I tried to do it. I tried to do I wanted to get like a year sober in two weeks. But I would have, even if they gave me the chip, I would have lost all the, the wisdom I would have gained along the way. And you get it day by day by day by day. It all comes in time. It does. And I wanted to run before I could walk, you know. But it's like it all goes back to step one. I was powerless over alcohol and drugs, and my life had become unmanageable. And once you reach a point that you can say that without reservation, you're well on your way because the foundation of this 12-step recovery program is based on that, admitting that we, in, in layman's terms, you know, the, the best way to fix a problem, the first step in fixing a problem is to admit you have one. One of the last things I'll say to you today, you know, I used to work in the retail furniture business and uh, every week we'd get a newsletter from the home office called the uh, RGO, the Richmond General Office. I worked for Heiligmeier's Furniture for eight and a half years. But they would send us this newsletter and it had a thought for the week at the bottom of every one of them. And I only remember one. Eight and a half years of reading that newsletter, I only remember one. And I guess it's because it applied to me. Because when I read it, I said, you know what, that makes perfect sense. And the the thought for the day was, people would learn more from their mistakes if they weren't so busy denying that they made them. And that fit me to a T. Because I would have a mistake and I would try to rationalize it or justify it or blame somebody else. And at some point, I kind of said, you know what? Here's what happened, and this is my part in that. This is my fault. I have to fix this. I have to remedy this in whatever way that I can. And so you got to be a little bit selfish, and you got to focus on you for a little while. But the first step in that, again, is admitting that you're powerless over alcohol and drugs, and your life has become unmanageable. No matter what you're dealing with, no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much this becomes elusive for you or how many times you have to work through it, and you know what, I'm not one of these people that thinks you should just kind of run through and, you know, ram ride the first three or four steps of this program and then call it a day. You work on it, and you chew on it until you get it. But no matter how long it takes you and no matter what you're dealing with, I want you to know you're not alone because I'm right there with you.